Chapter Twenty Nine of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine, La Vie est brève, un peu d'espoir, un peu de rêve, et puis bonsoir, et puis bonsoir, Montenacin. A great light shone in his eyes as he rose from the couch of wood upon which his dead body, with feet turned towards Mecca, was to lie. The light from the lamp of bronze and cut glass shade of deepest orange tint struck down upon him, throwing shadows from the snow-white turban which outlined the face to beneath the eyes, and round about the hawk nose, and the mouth of which the gentleness was so belied by the dominant jaw. It gave an ivory shade to the snow-white satin of his raiment. It glistened on his only jewel, an amulet carved from an emerald in the shape of a scarab, set in gold and hung from a fine gold chain about his neck. His beauty was of the East, but it was male. There was no trace of that effeminacy which so jars upon the sensibilities of those who are bred in colder climes, and brought up on sterner lines than the luxurious dweller of the East. He stood listening to the far distant sound, then threw out his arms. By the mercy of Allah, God of gods, I am found worthy to serve thee, O my beloved, within the hour, yea, in but a little over the passing of half one hour, before the shadow of my tent shall reach yon rope, I shall have looked upon thee. He knew. His heart told him who was coming to him out of the night. His knowledge of the desert enabled him, by the drumming sound of the hoofs upon the sand, a sound which has not its semblance in the world, to know to a second when the mare would stop before the tent. It was not the hour of Nazam, the hour of prayer before dawn, the dawn which was to see his questions answered, but he turned, and pulling back the velvet-soft leather curtain, entered the small room lighted by a silver lamp hanging just above the crystal basin, full to the brim with water. No, it was not the hour of Nazam, but filled with the Oriental's mysterious premonition of that which is to befall, he performed the prescribed ablutions of the hour of prayer. Three times he washed his nostrils, his mouth, and hands, and arms to the elbows, the right first, as ordained, then the head and neck, and ears once, and feet once. He stood erect, with his hands above his head, for five full minutes, whilst the drumming of the sands sounded nearer and nearer, then emptied the water in a circle upon the desert sands, refilled the crystal basin with water from a crystal pitcher, and passed into the tent, and out upon the sands across which— and even as a speck upon the horizon, he saw the mare Piquet racing. And he threw his hands heavenwards with a great cry, Allah be praised! O oh, Allah, unto thee I give thanks! The prayer of thanksgiving uttered by his own father so many years ago. It was a sight to watch, that of the snow-white mare Piquet stretched out, flying like the wind, ridden by a slip of a girl with her gleaming cloak streaming like a banner behind her, but the look upon the man's face was still more wonderful to behold, as he stood motionless, sharply outlined against the orange light behind him. The mare slackened not her pace one whit. Like a thunderbolt she hurled herself right up to where stood the master she loved with all her great equine heart. Then she stopped short, fine forelegs spread wide, then reared until it seemed she must fall backwards, then crashed down to rear again, until the loved voice bade her stand." With the strange, frozen look in her eyes which gave them the appearance of ice-bound lakes, and which had been there since she had crept from the hotel, Damaris slipped from the saddle into the arms of Hugh Cardin Ali, and there she rested, trembling from head to foot with the stress of her ride, 
whilst the white mare whinnied for some recognition from her master. And he pulled her forelock from about her gentle eyes, and pulled her small ears, and stroked the arched neck, then, with a sharp word, ordered her to the stables, and turning to lead the girl into the tent in which no foot but his had trod, gave no more thought to the mare Piquet. She obeyed him with mighty little zest, yet lingered not one moment, even though her delicate nostrils showed wide their crimson depths, and her satin flanks heaved like bellows through the speed in which she had covered so many miles. She moved away at a gentle trot, then stopped and looked back along her satin flank towards the tent, in a vain hope of seeing her master just once more. She did not completely turn round, she obeyed where she loved, she just looked back along her flank, then, doubtless recognizing her defeat, gave a little flick of her heels and trotted off again. She was just midway between the tents and her stables when she stopped dead, with ears pricked forward. Save for the silvery mane and tail blown by the night wind, she might have been a statue carved out of marble, so still was she. Then she suddenly backed and reared a foot or two, then backed again, wheeled, started towards the tents, stopped and wheeled again. She trembled from head to foot, the beautiful, terrified creature, great eyes rolling, little feet sending the sand flying as she moved continually on one spot. There was nothing to see as she stood, looking east. The tents were behind her, her stables in a straight line from them to the west. There was absolutely no sound, none at all, until she neighed. She neighed until the desert rang with the sound, neighed until the horses in the stables, some miles away, pulled at their halters and lashed out on every side. Then she reared and wheeled as she stood straight on her slender hind legs, then, crashing to the ground, with a convulsive leap, was off into the desert. Neither did she return for many days, nor was she seen until that dawn when her saïs found her in the front of the middle tent, snuffing at the closed flap. But the flap was not closed this night, as Hugh Cardin Ali sat on the couch of wood, and looked at the girl who sat beside him. She stared down at her hands, which pleated and flattened and repleated the satin of her skirt, and her face was as white as her neck and her arms, which shone like lilies kissed by the sun, under the light of the orange lamp. He waited for her to speak, for it was not for him to guide or influence her in any way by spoken word. He led her to the wooden couch, which had perforce to serve as seat, and there was none other in the tent, and took her cloak, passing his hand gently across the sable collar which encircled her throat, and he glimpsed the hurt of her heart down in the depths of her eyes, when she looked up at him and put out her hand and stopped him, when, murmuring something about coffee, he turned to the entrance. "'I could not drink it, thank you,' she whispered. "'I want—I—' and stopped, and looked down, and pleated the satin over her knee, and flattened it with her palm. She was terrified at the desperate step she had taken, and well she might be. She was strung to a great pitch of nervous excitement, through the exhilaration of her tearing ride. She was stubbornly determined to prevent the finger of scorn from pointing in her direction, but she was finding a subtle salve to the smart of the wound to her pride, in the romantic setting of the wonderful picture made by the man beside her. In faith, I see no real excuse whatever in exoneration of her mad impulse, unless it be in her education, or rather want of it, and in the fact that she was younger than her years. Educated in the hugger-mugger way in which are educated the girls who will not have to use their knowledge to earn a livelihood, it must be confessed the great and rare, in these days, asset of perfect manners and courtesy towards all mankind, Yet she had never been taught the rudiments of self-control and deliberation. 
She had a heart of gold, truly, but she leapt to conclusions with closed eyes. With her, to think had always been to act. So that, having leapt far out into a morass of incertitude, she sat perplexed, for it tis no easy matter to say, Please, will you marry me? to a man, even if you know that he worships the ground your shadow falls upon. He sat silent, with his eyes upon her hands, waiting for fate to point out his path. Little by little, bit by bit, her surroundings began to affect her. The blood came slowly back to her cheeks so that they glowed like the wild rose in the hedgerow, and her eyes began to lose that set stare which hides the perturbed mind, and to soften behind the heavy fringe of lashes, and her hands to cease their nervous plucking at her dress. She lifted her eyes to the strangely painted tent side, looked at the silvery spear and tilted her head back, until her throat gleamed like an ivory pillar, to look up at the ceiling with the painted vultures, the emblem of maternity. The man looked up, then looked down upon this woman of his mother's race whom he loved, and longed with all the intense passion of his father's race that he might see his firstborn upon her breast. She was trying to find words, and they came to her when she clasped her hands upon the jewelled brooch in the shape of the hawk of Egypt. She looked at him suddenly, and a little shiver swept through her at the strange beauty of this silent man, and he as suddenly turned his hands palm upwards in an uncontrollable eastern gesture of prayer to fate who had so much to give him, or, perhaps, so little. "'You said you—you you said you would help me if—if if I came to you in trouble.' She tripped and stumbled over the words. "'I have come to—to—ask my help.' The words were as cold as stones dropped in the beggar's hand, but Damaris leant back quickly when she looked into the man's eyes, and saw in them the reflection of the fire she had kindled. "'What is the help you need of me? I know nothing of the ways of women, but I do know that it has been the storm which has swept you away from your safe harbour, out towards a shore upon which are piled the wrecks of many souls.' She twisted the brooch between her fingers. "'My wedding gift,' said Hugh Cardin Ali softly, then watched the crimson dye the white neck and surge across her face. "'You come to—me for help.' He repeated the words slowly. "'Then you, of course, are—are are free. Ah!' He leant forward and caught her hands. "'You have run away. From what?' "'No, do not speak. I can read your answer in your face. You have been hurt.' He lifted the little ringless left hand, then pressed it against the other between his own, whilst a great light flamed in his eyes. "'You have come to me, and there is but one meaning for me, in that you have come to me. Is it—' His voice dropped to the softest whisper, as he crushed her hand, down upon the wooden couch so that she swayed towards him. "'Is it that I may fasten my own wedding gift into the bridal robe of the woman I love and will take to wife? Is it—' Damaris bowed her head so that the curls danced and glistened in the light, as the torrent of his words, in the Egyptian tongue, swept about her like a flood. Hast thou come to me in love, thou dove from the nest? Nay, what knowest thou of love? I ask it not of thee, yet, but the seed I shall plant within thee shall grow in the passing of the days and the nights, and the months and the years, until it is as a grove of perfumed flowers, which shall change to golden fruit, ready to the plucking of my hand." He pressed her little hands back against her breast so that the light fell full upon her face, and held her thuswise, watching the colour rise and fade. "'Allah!' he whispered. "'Allah! God of all! What have I done to deserve such signs of thy great goodness? Wilt love me?' 
He laughed gently. Canst thou look into mine eyes, and shake thy golden head, which shall be pillowed upon my heart? My wife, the mother of my children, look at me, look at me. Ah, thine eyes, which were as the pools of Lebanon at night, are as a sun-kissed sea of love. Thou knowest it not, but love is within thee, for me, thy master. And was there not truth in what he said? May there not have been love in the heart of the girl? Not, maybe, the love which stands sweet and sturdy, like the stocky hyacinth, to bloom afresh, no matter how often the flowers be struck, or the leaves be crushed, from the humdrum bulb deep in the soil of quiet content. But the God-given, iridescent love of youth for youth, with its passion so swift, so sweet, a love like the rosebud which hangs half-closed over the door in the dawn, which is wide-flung to the sun at noon, which scatters its petals at dusk. The rose— she has filled your days with the memory of her fragrance, her leaves still scent the night from out the sealed crystal vase which is your heart. But, and you would attain the priceless boon of peace, see to it that a humdrum bulb be planted in the brown flower-pot which is your home. And because of this God-given love of youth which was causing her heart to thud, and the blood to race through her veins, she did not withdraw her hands when he held and kissed them, and pressed his forehead upon them. Lotus-flower! he whispered, so that she could scarcely hear, bud of innocence, ivory tower of womanhood, temple of love, beloved, beloved, I am at thy feet. And he knelt and kissed the little feet in the heelless little slippers, then, rising, took both her hands and led her to the door, and his eyes were filled with a great sadness, in spite of the joy which sang in his heart as he took her into the shelter of his arms. I love thee too well, he said, as he bent and kissed the riotous curls so near his mouth. Yea, I love thee too well to snatch thee even as a hungry dog snatches his food, though verily I be more near to starving than any hungry dog. What dost thou know of love, of life in the strange countries of the East? For thy life will be a desert life, my love, if once thou art my wife. Look up, look around thee. He pointed to the stars, he pointed to the dim horizon of the desert over which at that very moment was padding that hound fate. Wilt thou be content with that, and with me and thy children? Wilt thou not yearn for the comforts of thy heated rooms, the company of those who will point the finger of scorn, maybe, at thee as they have pointed at my mother? He spared her not one jot as he made plain to her what might be the result of her marriage. She would not be marrying the pure-bred son of a splendid race, as his mother had done. She would be the wife of a half-case, the mixed offspring of two great races. Her children would be half-castes, outcasts from their rightful heritage of the sons of the East and the West. The women of her race would not own her, the women of his father's race would not permit her children to play with theirs. Wealth, palaces, camels, horses, jewels would be hers, a place for her children in the seat of his father's, or her father's, never. I should be strong, I should be strong, for in my heart something tells me that I am thinking of my happiness and not thine. "'Your mother,' whispered Damaris, so softly that he had to bend his head lower still, so that when she moved, in the pain of his arms which crushed her, her cheek brushed his. "'She is happy. Everyone says so.' "'Happy? Yes, she was happy, his beloved, most honoured mother. At least she had been, until there had come the question of her child's happiness, her half-cased child.' Then he laughed, joyfully, stretched the girl's arms wide, then crushed her hands above her heart. "'Of course, of course!' he cried. "'They are at my house, and Mahaba, the house of love, even now, where they have met to see if they, the dears, 
thy wise old godmother, my beautiful wise mother, can find an answer to this very question. They were not. Sick with suspense, they had landed on the far side of the Nile, on their race with time to the gate of to-morrow. We will go to them to-morrow, thou and I, to the gate of to-morrow, thou with the mare Piquet, I with the stallion Sultan, who will well-nigh kill thy mare, my woman, in jealousy. Yea, he bent and whispered in her ear so quietly, so coldly, as to cause the girl to tremble, as I will kill any one who looks at thee when thou art my wife. Then he laughed like a boy as he swung her round, and held her at arm's length by both hands. We will start to-morrow to meet them, when we will lay the question before them, and then—and then—why— Damaris, with all the smart of the wound to her pride revived, had shaken her head. I want you—I want you to— Hugh Carden Ali understood by the grace of intuition. We will start for Kergag to-morrow, he continued after a little pause, and at the same time, if it will please thee, with thy consent, I will send my swiftest runner to Luxor, where he will dispatch by cable the news of— Oh, my beloved, of our engagement! Allah, what a word to describe the opening of the gates of paradise, to all the great cities of my country and of thy country! Have I thy consent? Incapable of speech, Damaris nodded. Having cast the die, she trembled like a leaf, and at the sight of her, white, with big, frightened eyes staring at him and teeth driven into her lip, he took her into his arms. Thou art mine, beloved, mine as thou hast been in all the past, as thou wilt be in all the ages to come. All mine, thy heart, thy soul, thy body. I ask to gather no pebble from the path, nor flower from the tree, as I will have the jewelled necklace of thy beauty to hang above my heart, and the grove of thy sweetness in which to take my rest. I love thee, and for the agony of the hours passed in the ruined temples I will take my reward. I love thee, love thee, love thee. She made no sound when he bent and kissed her hair, but in the glory of the love, which is that of youth, which is as a bud at dawn, the full flower at noon and a few petals at dusk, and of which the fragrance stays with you down all the ages, he raised her face so that he kissed her on the mouth. And he kissed her closed eyes, and the pillar of her throat, and the whiteness of her shoulders, and her crimson mouth again and yet again, in the wonder of this, his hour of life, granted to him by Allah, who is God, and then raised his head and stared out across the desert. From a great distance there came to him the drumming of a horse's hooves upon the sand. End of chapter 29 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org